Welcome, listeners. You have begun listening to It's All Relative, the podcast that looks at crime in the family. If you somehow thought this was one of the other It's All Relative podcasts, you are wrong. I swear, when I started this pod, there were just me and one other podcast that only appeared on a couple services. Now, there seems to be like six dealing with a variety of family struggles. This podcast is a true crime podcast, so there are many things spoken of here that are probably not for the faint of heart. Now is your chance to bugger off and tune in to the Hallmark Channel. If you are still listening, you're my kind of people. I am doing this pod on my own. I try very hard to get details correct. I also have opinions which may not jive with everyone who listens. Exchange of ideas is welcome. My name is Kaylee, and you can reach me at Dispecta, D-I-S-P-E-C-T-A, on most of the things. Listen up, trolls. You will not get paid. And ginormous as all get out, belly goat gruff, will kick your ass off that bridge. Now, to get you in the mood for this roller coaster of a tale, here are the animals. I hate to start on a cliche, but the pun is staring me in the face. It was a dark and stormy night. And it was, quote, It rained in Fayetteville, North Carolina on the night of Monday, February 16th, 1970, and into the early hours of Tuesday morning. It had been raining off and on for a week. A cold, demoralizing February rain which had turned the sandy soil muddy but which had brought no new life to the brown winter grass. At Fort Bragg, situated less than 10 miles from downtown Fayetteville, the night had begun uneventfully. The military police patrol assigned to the corridor court's housing area had responded to only one call since coming on duty at 11.30 p.m., and that had been from a captain having trouble with his oil burner. At least a half a dozen times, the two-man patrol had driven past 544 Castle Drive and had neither seen nor heard anything out of the ordinary. On a Monday night in February, the combination of cold and rain apparently was enough to have kept the streets almost deserted. Then, at 3.40 a.m., a Fayetteville telephone operator received a call from a man who asked in a very faint voice that the military police and an ambulance be sent to 544 Castle Drive. Is that on post or off post? the operator asked. She did not receive an answer to her question. Instead, there was only silence on the line. She put the call through to MP headquarters at Fort Bragg. At 3.42 a.m., a desk sergeant heard the caller say, 544 Castle Drive, help. 544 Castle Drive, stabbing. Then apparently the caller dropped the phone. The sergeant heard a clunking noise as if the receiver had hit a wall or a floor. For 30 seconds, maybe 60, there was silence. Then the caller was back, speaking this time in a voice that the sergeant described as almost too weak to be a whisper. 544 Castle Drive stabbing. Hurry. Again, there was only silence on the line. End quote. That is from a book called Fatal Vision. 
There will be more on that book later, but for now, you just need to know that it exists, and I'm quoting from it. The phone call came from Captain Jeffrey McDonald, a 26-year-old doctor and Green Beret stationed at Fort Bragg. The call was coming from the apartment where he lived with his wife, 26-year-old Colette, and his two daughters, Kimberly, age 5, and Kristen, age 2. Colette was also just shy of five months pregnant. According to that same book, when interviewed by CID and FBI investigators, this is what Jeffrey McDonald said about the time leading up to the call. Quote, McDonald told both agents that after his wife's return from class, they had watched television together sitting on the couch and sipping a liqueur. They had seen a Bob Hope special and Glenn Campbell and the 11 o'clock news. Shortly after the start of Johnny Carson, Colette, who was four and a half months pregnant, had gone to bed. McDonald had stayed up to watch the rest of Johnny Carson. At 1 a.m., still not tired, he had read the last 50 pages of a paper-packed novel he'd started earlier. At some point, he had heard his younger daughter, Kristen, start to cry, and he had brought her a bottle of chocolate milk. Finishing the novel at 2 a.m., he had washed the dinner dishes. Then he had prepared to go to bed but had found his younger daughter in bed with his wife, and had found also that she had wet the bed. He had carried her back to her own room and placed her in the bed. Then, not wanting to awaken his wife in order to change the wet sheet, he had taken a blanket from Kristen's room and had returned to the living room, and had immediately fallen asleep on the couch. He did not know how long he had slept, but the next sound he had heard had been the sound of his wife shouting, Jeff! Jeff, help! And Jeff! Jeff, why are they doing this to me? At the same time, he heard his older daughter, Kimberly, screaming, Daddy, 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 Daddy. As he opened his eyes, he saw four people standing over him. A black man wearing an army fatigue jacket with sergeant stripes on the sleeve. Two white men, one of whom had a mustache and wore a red hooded sweatshirt. And the blonde woman in the floppy hat, holding a candle in front of her face. She wore high boots and a short skirt. He could not recall the exact color of the boots, but he said they were so wet they appeared to be black. They were all wet, he said. The water was just dripping off of them, like they had walked in out of the rain. Acid is groovy, the woman was chanting. Kill the pigs, acid, and rain. As he had tried to sit up, the black man had hit him on the side of the head with a baseball bat. As he grabbed for it, he found it to be slipped as if it were covered with blood. Struggling with the intruders, MacDonald had suddenly felt a sharp pain on the right side of his chest. At first he had thought, this guy throws a hell of a punch. But then he looked down and saw the glint of a blade, an ice pick blade. He said he wrestled his way off the couch and toward the two steps that led up from the living room to the hallway. At that point he fell forward and passed out. When he regained consciousness, he did not know how much time had passed. The house was silent and dark, and he was shivering so hard his teeth were chattering. His pajama top, bloody and torn, was twisted around his wrists. He had gone from room to room and had discovered the bodies of his wife and daughters. He had felt for pulses and heartbeats and tried, in each case, to administer mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, but had heard only gurgling sounds indicating that blood and air were escaping through the lungs. He had pulled a small knife from his wife's chest. He had covered her with his torn pajama top. He had gone to the back door to look for signs of intruders. He had gone to the hall bathroom to check the extent of his own injuries. He had used first the bedroom telephone and then the kitchen phone to call for help. The operator, he said, would not accept his complaint until he had given her his social security number. One of the white males, he said, the shorter one, had been wearing lightweight gloves. 
They could have been surgical gloves. He kept several pairs of surgical gloves around the house. Colette had used them while washing dishes, end quote. Once the emergency call reached them, the MPs arrived at the McDonald's residence within 10 minutes. Quote, the front door was locked. The blinds were drawn. Inside the house seemed dark and silent. A lieutenant knocked. There was no response. He knocked harder. One MP suggested that they break down the door. The lieutenant said no. This was, after all, an officer's residence. He tried once more, banging as hard as he could. Then he started back towards his car, thinking he would call the provost marshal to ask about obtaining a search warrant. On his way, he said, somebody checked the back door. A sergeant trotted around the side of the house. Two other MPs started to follow. They were only halfway around, however, and the lieutenant was only halfway to his car when they met the sergeant coming back. He was no longer trotting, but running now as fast as he could. Tell them to get Womack ASAP. Womack is the name of the Fort Bragg Hospital. The back door was open, though a screen door outside it was closed. The rear entrance led through a small utility room into the master bedroom. Colette MacDonald, who was 26 years old at the time of her death, lay on her back, legs apart, on the floor next to the bed. One eye was open, one breast exposed, and one arm was extended over her head. She was covered in blood. A torn and blood-stained blue pajama top had been draped across part of her chest. Her own pajamas, which had been pink, were dark with blood. Her face and head were battered and covered with blood, and more blood had soaked, perhaps was still soaking, into the rug on which she lay. Her husband, Captain Jeffrey R. MacDonald, M.D., also 26, lay next to her, motionless. He wore only blue pajama bottoms. He was face down with his head on her chest and one arm wrapped around her neck. A small paring knife lay on the rug near a dresser. A bedspread and sheet, saturated with blood, lay rumpled together near the doorway that led to the hall. On the headboard of the double bed, in letters eight inches high, the word pig had been written in blood. Jeffrey MacDonald began to moan. An MP ran to his side. Check my kids, MacDonald whispered. I, I heard my kids crying. An MP ran down the hall. He took two steps inside a darkened bedroom on his left. He shined his flashlight on the bed. Kimberly MacDonald, five years old, lay on her left side. The covers were pulled up to her shoulders and tucked beneath her. Blood covered her mattress and pillow. There was a large wound, through which bone protruded on her cheek. There also were a number of gaping stab wounds in her neck. The MP backed quickly out of the room and stepped to a doorway on the opposite side of the hall. Shining his light on the bed in that room, he saw the body of an even smaller child, Kristen MacDonald, two years old, also lay on her left side. Her left was outstretched. A nearly empty baby bottle lay next to her mouth. A large stuffed dog stood near the bed, its wide-eyed face pointed towards her. Her blonde hair, her head, and her face were unmarked but she had been stabbed many times in the chest and back. Her pajamas, sheets, and mattress were soaked with blood, and more blood had run down the side of her bed to form a large pool on the floor. End quote. Woof. After hearing all that, you probably want to take a shower and down large quantities of wine. I've been buried in this case for several months, and I still feel a bit like I'm going to throw up. Those people were brutalized. And according to Jeffrey MacDonald, four hippies had done this to them. This attack happens in February of 1970. 
Just six months previous, the Manson family had killed a very pregnant Sharon Tate, leaving Pig written in blood on the front door. The group also killed the LaBiancas the very next day, the sleeping Lino LaBianca having been roused from his slumber on the sofa. In addition, the American public may have known of the murders out in California, but this was not the era of instant news, whether fake or real. California was 2,600 miles and a whole cultural style away from North Carolina. Many people also held the idea that crazy shit happened in Los Angeles, but that was LA. Such things would never happen in North Carolina, or Iowa, or Vermont, or insert your state of choice here. Most people at the time didn't know the particulars of the Manson murders. They certainly didn't know that it was the Manson family of hippies, inverted commas there, who committed either of these crimes, let alone the murders were connected. The police didn't even make the connection between Sharon Tate and the LaBiancas until December of 1969, and December 1969 is only two months before the McDonald's were killed. Word was actually just getting out in the national media about Charles Manson and his plans for Helter Skelter. Jeffrey McDonald had one of, and as far as I can tell, the first articles on the topic, found in the March 1970 issue of Esquire magazine. 1. Don't get confused. Quite a few magazines date their issues a month in advance. 2. If you don't know what Helter Skelter and the Manson family means, it's a thing. Look it up. Now, Fayetteville itself had become a bit of a problem for the nice, God-fearing folk. Young men were coming back from Vietnam fucked up. Drugs help, if for no other reason than that they allowed for an escape. GIs were smuggling various mind-altering substances into North Carolina for use and to make extra cash. So, counterculture was uncomfortably noticeable in Fayetteville by February 1970 and the ability of those God-fearing folk to pretend it didn't exist in North Carolina was beginning to buckle. My point here is that the U.S. was just waking up to the knowledge that scary hippies had not only committed an atrocity in California, but it was entirely possible a similar atrocity had happened just outside of Fayetteville, on an army base, no less. Oh God, where will the evil end? I quote, after two days had passed with no arrests, the local papers reported that waves of terror had engulfed Fort Bragg. Husbands refused to report for night duty. Doors were double and triple locked. Military police attempting to query neighborhood residents found women afraid to open their doors, even in daylight, even to uniformed personnel. More than 90 new gun permits were issued on the base within 48 hours of the murders and pawn shops throughout Fayetteville reported an unprecedented demand for firearms. End quote. People are scared shitless that this wandering band of hippies would come for them next. And poor Jeffrey McDonald was on the edge of death in the hospital with no family to comfort him should he pull through. William Ivory was the CID agent on duty the night of February 16th and morning of February 17th. CID being the Army's Criminal Investigative Division. He arrived at 544 Castle Drive as Jeffrey McDonald was being wheeled into the ambulance. He made a preliminary survey of the scene, including viewing the bodies in situ. Agent Ivory then went to the neighbor's house and used the phone to call in as many members of the CID he could think of, including the chief, Franz Joseph Grebner. 
Ivory then asked the neighbor to go next door, meaning 544, where the bodies lay, and confirmed the IDs of the three victims. The neighbor was a warrant officer, but even he became nauseous and had to leave the house. By the time Chief Grepner arrived just after 5 a.m., there were so many people at the scene he could, couldn't find a place to park. After surveying the crime scene, Grebner called the crime lab, which was based out of Georgia, and told them to send out technicians to North Carolina to process the scene. Just after 6 a.m., three of the four weapons allegedly used in the attacks were discovered just outside the back door. The fourth had been lying on the floor in the master bedroom, not far from Colette's body. About 8 a.m., medics arrived to transport the bodies. Lying atop Colette were a bath mat and Jeffrey McDonald's pajama top. Ivory collected both items, noting that the back of the pajama top was riddled with ice pick holes. Fearing that McDonald may be close to death with that many ice pick holes in his back, Ivory immediately sent an agent to the hospital to attempt to gain as much information as possible from him before he passed away. Arriving at Womack, the investigators found Captain McDonald agitated. In fact, McDonald's good friend Ron Harrison would say that he was twitching back and forth so hard, Harrison was concerned McDonald would dislodge the chest tube which had been inserted in his lung to aid him in breathing. When both his mother and Colette's parents arrive, McDonald breaks down in tears, saying, quote, They were all dead. Colette and Kimmy and Christy are dead. They killed them all. Colette's mother stepped to the side of his bed. He looked up at her and started to sob. I couldn't protect her, he said. She was so good, and you gave her to me, and I couldn't take care of her. End quote. On the 21st, a funeral service was held at Fort Bragg for the slain McDonald family. Media services would report McDonald bravely enduring his chest pain to pay homage to his loved ones. He only began to break into tears when the service drew to a close. Upon the ending of the service, the captain returned to the hospital to continue recuperating. The three bodies would be flown to Long Island for burial. MacDonald would remain in Womack for nine days. Once discharged, he was assigned to bachelor's quarters on base. His mother was given visitor's quarters, and Jeffrey ended up sleeping on his mother's couch, stating that he couldn't stand the solitude in his new housing unit. The murders of Colette, Kristen, and Kimberly MacDonald put Jeffrey MacDonald in the spotlight at first in the Raleigh area, but it didn't take long for the nation to be clamoring for news, and Jeffrey was giving the people the proper showing of a grief-stricken man. But little things were niggling at investigators, things that seemed off and needed to be explained. The first thing being the silent melee that took place, resulting in the death of three of the four McDonald's. Living next door to the McDonald's, that warrant officer with whom Agent Ivory spoke in the wee hours of February 17th, lived there with his wife and teenage children. Ivory asked the warrant officer if he or his family noticed any kind of disturbance that night. The military family housing was of a multi-family type, and the family shared walls. Although there had been times in the past in which various types of noises could be heard coming from the McDonald home, Nothing was heard on the night that the murders took place. Also, when Chief Grebner entered 544 Castle Drive, his thought was that he'd had poker games that left more mess than what he saw in the McDonald house. It seemed odd to him that there was supposedly a true battle for life, or lives, 
in that small apartment, and yet there was no real sign that any type of struggle had taken place. Lastly, there were Jeffrey McDonald's injuries. I don't want to be deliberately gory, but it's really important here to emphasize the contrast in the level of attack committed against Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen when compared to that encountered by Jeff. The autopsy found that, quote, Colette had been stabbed nine times in the neck and seven times in the chest with a knife. One of the wounds had put a hole through her major pulmonary artery, the vessel that carries blood from the heart to the lungs. This had caused massive bleeding into her chest cavity and into the sac surrounding her heart. That had been what had killed her, the bleeding, both internal and external. She had also been stabbed 21 times in the chest with an ice pick. The thrusts had been so powerful that the blade of the ice pick had been driven into her chest up to the hilt. She had been hit at least six times in the head with a club, once on each temple causing lacerations in which the skin was torn right down to the skull, once in the middle of the forehead, fracturing her skull, once on top of her head, once across the jaw, near the chin, and once above the right ear, that blow too delivered with enough force to break the skin. In addition, both of Colette McDonald's arms had been broken. The pathologist described these as defensive-type injuries. He said they had apparently been sustained as she had held her arms up in front of her face, in an attempt to ward off the blows. Both bones in the right forearm were broken, and one of the bones in the left forearm was broken twice. End quote. And look, I could keep going, but it should be sufficient enough for me to say that the attack against the girls was not any kinder. Those two baby girls died as violently as their mother. Now, McDonald, in contrast, had four injuries. A chest wound resulting in a 20% collapse of his lung. This did increase to 40% within 24 hours of being in the hospital and a tube was inserted to aid in keeping it inflated. He also had a bruise on the left side of the forehead and the superficial stab wounds of the abdomen and upper left arm. None of his wounds required stitching. The lung healed without additional incident. Okay, please note, when I say lastly, I mean last in the preliminary list of problems to find solutions to. More things will arise as the investigation continues but these are the things that immediately raise the hairs on the back of Ivory and Grebner's necks. But let's hash these three out and see where it gets us. The noise, or lack thereof. From Fatal Vision, quote, William Ivory paid a return visit to Jeffrey McDonald's next-door neighbors. He asked again if they were certain they had heard nothing from 544 Castle Drive during the early hours of February 17th. The warrant officer's wife said no, she was not certain at all. She was, in fact, now certain she had heard sounds coming from the apartment, but in the first shock of learning what had happened, she had been afraid to mention it. The way the apartments were laid out along Castle Drive, the neighbors actually lived above the McDonald's, although the entrances to the apartments were adjacent to one another. The master bedroom of the upstairs apartment was, thus, directly above the McDonald master bedroom. The warrant officer's wife now said she could remember having been awakened by the sound of Colette McDonald's loud and angry voice. She could not recall what words had been spoken, but she emphasized the anger in her voice. Her 16-year-old daughter also spoke again to Ivory. 
Her bedroom was directly above the McDonald living room. Often in past, she had been able to hear conversations from the apartment below or the sound of a phonograph or television. Sometime after she had gone to bed on the night of Monday, February 16th, she said she had been awakened by a sound from below. It had not been either the phonograph or television, nor had it been the sound of a struggle between Jeffrey McDonald and four intruders who were clubbing and stabbing him. She had heard nothing of that sort. What she had heard, she said, had been the sound of a male voice. It had sounded to her like the voice of Jeffrey McDonald, either sobbing loudly or laughing hysterically. End quote. So, first, we have no noise reported by McDonald's neighbors, which is strange if there had been a life and death struggle going on next to and under them. The further report does not help McDonald's account of intruders and a grand struggle. And before you judge the neighbors too harshly for changing their story, I know I have a tendency to draw a blank when put on a spot to answer a question or remember something, only to have the appropriate response dawn on me at a later time. I know it looks a bit fishy, and it very well might be fishy, but it could also just be a case of people remembering something given a bit of time. So, the remembered account has, essentially, an argument taking place between Colette and McDonald, resulting in McDonald either weeping aloud or chuckling like a madman. Then we have the mess. Wait, no, there was no mess. There was an upturned table, a phone off the hook, one bloody footprint on the hall floor. As a reminder, take a listen to McDonald's account of the incident. Um, the next thing I knew, I was awakened on the couch, and I was awakened by a combination of hearing my wife screaming for help and asking for me, and my older daughter, five-year-old, uh, five-year-old, uh, yelling screaming for help, daddy, daddy, daddy. And my wife was saying, Jeff, Jeff, why are they doing this? Help, Jeff. And I started to push up. There was a little light on in the kitchen, which is a small apartment, and there was some light in the living room from this light in the kitchen. And there were, to my immediate view, three people. It turned out there were four, but I saw three people, a black male, two white males. The black male had on an army jacket with E6 sergeant stripes. And in the ensuing struggle, there were two episodes of time, very, very brief, in which I saw what I took to be a white female in a, in a broad floppy hat with stringy blonde hair. And I heard her say, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. I heard her say that at, more than once, and also the term acid and rain. It, it was raining out, outside at the time. But... As I awakened on the couch, I didn't know what was going on. I heard my wife, I heard my daughter, and I saw these people. And I either said, and I to this day don't know if I said it or thought I was going to say it, you know, what the hell are you doing here? Who are you? What's going on? And the black male to my left raised something, and he swung a club at me, and I threw my hand up, and he hit me in the head with a club, which I took to be a baseball bat. He drove me back to the uh, the couch that I was sleeping on, and I... Now my head was ringing and I, and I it was having a hard time getting up and my, uh, the, the comforter was still over my legs. And, but I pushed back up and I'm, and I'm trying to... And I was getting struck in the chest and about the head and I threw my hand up again and took another blow to the side of the head. And during this time, I suddenly developed a 
real severe chest pain. And I, I remember real distinctly thinking to myself, this guy throws a hell of a punch. Hmm. And I, I presume that was the, the stab wound that collapsed my lung. Is your wife still screaming? Or is that stopped? I don't know. I don't know when it stopped. Um, I heard her, and, and the voice rings in my ears to this day. So I, I don't know when it right. stopped. So you're now cut and hit, and you're lying on the couch? I didn't know I was being cut. I, I was all of a sudden in this struggle. I'm trying to push these people away and get up at the same time. I finally got my left leg on the floor, and that gave me a little leverage, and I started to move forward, and I finally grabbed the black male's arm as he swung it, and he kept jerking his arm away to pull the weapon away, and my hand kept sliding down on the weapon, which is how I know it was a baseball bat, because it was smooth. Who called, uh, then they left? Well, the next thing I knew, I was tumbling towards the floor, floor, and I saw the bare knee of what I took to be this white female, and I saw the top of boots. At the time, they were called mm -hmm. go-go boots. They were light in color, and they were glistening like they were wet. When I came to, the house was silent, and my first memory, as strange as it sounds, is the smell of Johnson's floor wax. My face was on the floor, and, and to this day, if I walk in a room that's recently waxed, I get a very weird mm. feeling. Because Did you call the MPs or the police? Or? When I went down into the master bedroom and found my wife brutally murdered, I tried to give her mouth-to-mouth uh, -mouth resuscitation. It didn't work, and eventually I made my way to two other bedrooms and found my children in the same state. I called the MPs. And that was Jeffrey McDonald himself being interviewed on a 2003 episode of Larry King. It was raining that night, a drenching rain. The clothes of the intruders looked wet, particularly the infamous boots. However, there were no puddles on any of the floors, no wet or muddy footprints, even dried mud. McDonald accounts a harrowing tale of struggling, even being stabbed in the living room. There is only an overturned coffee table to suggest anything happened in this room, let alone a life-and-death struggle. No blood, no mud, no mess. No bits of torn clothing, and we'll come back to that later. And then there are his four injuries. I've already given you more than the basics of the injuries to his wife and daughters. How does one reconcile that level of violence with Jeff's four wounds? He is a Green Beret, right? So maybe he was just better at fighting them off than his family was. I'm not the kind of investigator who looks at a problem, finds the 95% confidence level, and says, well then, that must be the answer. Forgive the science nerd here, but I hate it when you're looking at something as infinitely complex as a human being, and all the quote-unquote scientists try to see the answer using only three or four variables. I also hate it when scientists try to cram every answer into a set of variables and ignore the outliers as noise. Fuck off. So yes, Jeff McDonald may have fought them off and they left. It may be as simple as that. But as I suggested, these three nits to pick are just the start. We've got a whole head of lice here, and yes, I know that's a gross metaphor. In the next episode, I will talk more about the McDonald's themselves and look at the events leading up to the moment of the murders. If you like what you've heard here today, rate the pod, give it a review, don't forget to subscribe. If you don't like it, stop listening. End of story. Hey, one star warrior, put that keyboard down. And here's Sir Paul McCartney to send you on your way. Well, I get to the bottom, I